churches. Part of the frustration of mortality is bumping up against our human limits. Yes, we can do some awesome things thanks to the intelligence and creativity and physical strength with which our Creator has endowed us, but at the end of the day, our mortality and physical limits catch up with us. An example, one day this week I was listening to CBC News, The World at Six, as I often do. After all the other news, which can sometimes be rather sobering or even discouraging, the program director seems to usually try to end with a more positive, human interest kind of story. This particular day, the item in the spotlight was astronauts who had succeeded in growing chili peppers on the International Space Station. This Fresh produce had been growing for four months in a space about the size of an oven and provided a welcome addition to the other prepackaged, dehydrated astronaut fare. The newsreader said it's an important step preparing for longer space voyages to the moon and Mars. Yes, it's an accomplishment, and I suppose it's to be celebrated. But I can't help but think, really? Is this the peak of our accomplishment, growing vegetables in outer space? Should we really be pouring our efforts into gardening on the way to Mars when we haven't yet succeeded in feeding the hungry on our own planet? COP26 is a climate summit happening in Glasgow with 25,000 delegates from 200 countries until November 12th. There have been some positive gestures in terms of goals around reforestation, methane, coal, and funding of clean technology but governments are far from their 2015 goal, the Paris Agreement, in terms of limiting global warming to one and a half degrees Celsius. So are we really ready to be traveling to other planets when we haven't yet succeeded in taking care of our own? One post on social media was critical of Canada shipping coal and materials to China for manufacturing and then marketing the resulting solar panels as emissions neutral creative accounting at its best. So in our fallen human experience, we run up against walls. We can do much in our own power, but we can't do everything. The vigor of youth and learning from school and study eventually fails us. As the saying goes, the two certainties of life are death and taxes. From time to time, we bump up against the walls of our mortality. No amount of money or prestige can spare you the perils of disease. In today's gospel lesson, we encounter two individuals who both approach Jesus out of just such desperation. The first, Jairus, was a synagogue ruler, the leader of the elders responsible for administration and services at the nearby synagogue. I kind of think of Jairus as chair of the board or a similar responsible position. He was a leader in the community, a, a person of rank. He had considerable social standing. He may have approached Jesus well-dressed in flowing robes, but then he did something surprising. He fell at Jesus' feet and pleaded earnestly, fervently. Mark 5:23. My little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. She was 12 years old. How does a father feel when your little girl is dying and there seems to be nothing you can do? Money won't save her. Your social standing won't make her get better. A couple of times, my own adolescent daughter was near death due to anorexia, an eating disorder. 
She was hospitalized at Toronto General on one occasion and then a couple of years later in Sault Ste. Marie when she relapsed. In severe anorexia, electrolytes get out of whack and mental processing is impaired. Those affected can't even see themselves accurately when they look in the mirror. And parents become powerless as you watch your precious child waste away despite your best efforts. Also in Mark 5, we meet another person who had reached her limits despite her resources. There's an unnamed woman who has been ill with an internal hemorrhage, bleeding for some reason constantly for 12 years. Mark describes how dismal her circumstances are. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had, yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. She'd spent everything she had to pay the medical experts. So she'd started out with financial resources, but now those were all gone. Money can't buy health. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors. Rabbinical literature contains an example of what one recommended treatment might be. Let them dig seven ditches in which let them burn some cuttings of vines under four years old. Let her take in her hand a cup of wine. Let them lead her away from this ditch and make her sit over that. Let them remove her from that and sit her over another. At each removal you must say to her, Arise for thy flux. Really? Can you call that medicine? I have to sit there with my bear behind exposed to smoke from some burning grapevines and go from one ditch to another? That's it? And what's the cup of wine for? Am I supposed to drink it or just hold it like some magic potion? Maybe it's to dull the pain from the heat below. Yuck! No wonder she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse, as New Living Translation puts it. COVID has caused us to bump up against some walls in terms of our medical capabilities. Now we have various vaccines, but not everyone's convinced that's best for them. Premier Ford backed down from mandating vaccine for healthcare workers after British Columbia had to start canceling surgeries due to staffing shortages when they tried it. If you don't have the human resources, you can't provide the services. And healthcare workers are already stressed from months and months of fighting a pandemic. Friends and neighbors we know are so hesitant about taking the vaccine that they choose to lose their employment rather than take the chance of adverse effects. They have bumped up against a wall and will be feeling the financial pinch. Jesus has good news for both the synagogue ruler and the woman with long-term internal bleeding. But there's a secret ingredient that's the key to resolving their predicament, and it's faith. The vision of faith. Faith sees an alternative view of reality. Now, I'm not talking about alternative news sources and conspiracy theories here. Faith has the ability to see the unseen. Faith sees and focuses on what God can do rather than just what's apparent to the naked eye. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. We see Jairus' faith, first of all, in his approach to Jesus. As noted, he's a respected leader in the community. Yet as he approaches Jesus, he falls to his feet and pleads earnestly. 
He's sincere. He's desperate. He totally wants Jesus to step in and help. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bothered tracking Jesus down in the first place. But Jesus schools the synagogue ruler further in what true faith is about. 5.35 While Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Do you hear that? Does it apply to some situation you're facing? Why bother? New Living Translation. There's no use troubling the teacher now. What's the point? It's useless. Are you feeling that way today? Has life got you down? Are you feeling about ready to give up, that it's, it's useless to keep on trying, that it's not worth the bother? Listen up. Jesus has some counsel for you. Faith focuses on what God can do, not on the outward apparent reality, however much that may be staring you in the face. Look at verses 36 and 37. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. You see what Jesus is doing here? Uh, Selective ignorance. Like blinders on the eyes of a horse who won't be distracted by what's happening on either side. Ignore the naysayers. Don't be afraid. Just have faith. New Living Translation puts it. Only believe and ignore the rest. Focus on God and his promises, who he is, how far he's brought you, how he hasn't abandoned you before. Even Paul, near the end of his life, could admit Almost everyone had deserted him, yet the Lord stood at Paul's side during his defense and rescued him. 2 Timothy 4, 16 and 17. Paul says, at my first defense, no one came to my support, but everyone deserted me. May it not be held against them. But the Lord stood at my side and gave me strength, so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. And I was delivered from the lion's mouth. Did anyone else see Jesus standing there with Paul? No, but Paul saw the Lord with the eyes of faith. And here Paul's trust and confidence in the next verse, verse 18. The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. You can hear the ring of faith in them, thar words. So to focus on looking for what God may be about to do next, you may have to ignore what some others are telling you. Now, let's go a little deeper and notice how Jesus handles an even more discouraging environment. Verses 38 to 40. When they came to the home of the synagogue ruler, Jesus saw a commotion, people crying and wailing loudly, went in and said to them, Why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead, but asleep. But they laughed at him after he put them all out. This crowd was weeping and wailing, causing a commotion, possibly with professional mourners called in for the occasion, crying out loudly. But Jesus in faith does not see a funeral in process. He sees an opportunity for God to work. He insists, the child isn't dead. She's only asleep. Only asleep? This must have seemed nonsensical to those who had been there and watched the girl die. 
They had seen it with their own eyes. So they laughed at Jesus, jeered at him, laughed at him in scorn, ridiculed him. Faith may well put you in a situation where others will do that to you because they don't see what you see. It's okay. They laughed at Jesus and mocked him too. I wonder how ashamed they felt after he performed the miracle. What's Jesus' response to their ridicule? He put them all out, made them all leave. On board with God's plan, he took charge of the situation, carving out an environment where faith could work, creating a setting of expectancy free from doubt and despair. And he took with him his closest supporters, Peter, James, and John, who seemed to be his inner circle. When others mock, draw closer to those who, like you, can see other possibilities, the thing of wonder God may be about to do. The tenderness of our helper. Now we're coming to a couple of amazing miracles in a moment, but before we talk about the power of God, first note the tenderness of God's son. There's his sensitivity toward the woman with the hemorrhage. Verses 30 to 32. And once Jesus realized that power had gone out from him, he turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, Who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. He was hurrying on his way to an urgent engagement. A synagogue ruler had asked him to come save the man's dying daughter. This was a community leader, a very important person. There's no time to lose. The crowd was thronging around him, pressing in on him from all sides as he strode purposefully along. But all of a sudden, he stopped. There had been a touch. The crowd thronged, but only one person touched. And nobody had crept up behind him. She had no name that we know of. She was a woman, not allowed to testify in court in that culture. She was religiously unclean. To touch someone with a hemorrhage would defile you under the law of Moses. And she was penniless, destitute, having spent all she had. But her simple touch on the hem of Jesus' garment stopped him in his tracks. He felt it, despite the jostling of the crowd. He knew something had gone out of him to her, some healing power. And he stopped to find her, to seek her, to bring her into public view, to acknowledge her, to commend her faith. Let the important people wait. She was important, too. The sensitivity of the Savior, noticing those who, to most of society, were invisible. Then once they're at Jairus' house, Mark includes a little detail, probably having heard it directly from Peter, who must have watched it all wide-eyed. Mark 5:41. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha kum, which means little girl, I say to you, get up. Jesus doesn't stand aloof, wave his arms over the bed, and shout some declaration so loud it would raise the dead. He takes her gently by the hand and bids this little one, rise. The hand that formed the mountains and hurled the planets into orbit takes a little girl's hand to help her up. Do you have that tenderness in your mental picture of God? Elsewhere, Jesus pulled back the curtain of his soul so he could get a peek at his real inner nature, his core. Matthew eleven twenty nine. he said, 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Gentle, humble, tender. And he invites you along with him. He's wanting to share your load. The amazing power of faith's object. That tenderness conceals unimaginable strength. Let's not forget the major outcomes of this passage. A, a woman with an incurable internal bleeding that's impossible for doctors to cure gets instant healing that she can feel right away has made her whole. And B, a juvenile who has died is raised back to life. Mark 5:42. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old. At this, they were completely astonished. It's not that she started breathing again. Her eyes fluttered and she lay there, color gradually returning, looking up sweetly into the Savior's face as he kept holding her limp hand. No, she immediately stood up and walked around, apparently with an appetite, for Jesus instructed them to get her something to eat. Where are those mockers now? NIV. At this, they were completely astonished, New Living Translation. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. In the Greek, it's literally something like, they were amazed with great amazement, repeated for emphasis. I guess so. Send the mourners home. We're going to have a party instead. There are three recorded instances in Scripture of Jesus raising the dead. Here, privately, the son of the widow of Nain in Luke 7, publicly, and the raising of Lazarus after several days moldering in the tomb, John 11, before bitter enemies who subsequently began to plot Jesus' murder as a result. Lazarus' raising resulted in death for Jesus. But after all, that's kind of the way he works. His condemnation at the cross brought forgiveness for you and me. Faith object matters. In closing, we've noted the walls we humans bump up against, the limits of our mortality, those situations we can't overcome on our own means, whether by rank or by riches. The synagogue leader and bleeding woman were both stumped. They had exhausted all options. They had nowhere to turn but to Jesus. We've seen the vision of faith, how it, it chooses to focus on what God can do instead of the simple details of apparent reality. We've seen the tenderness of the Savior, yet how that's combined with his awesome power to raise the dead and cure the incurable. Faith is the key to overcoming those impossible walls that would seem to close us in. Yet faith by itself is not enough. Faith needs to be placed in the right object. Today you may hear those who claim to be people of faith, but it's Doubtful they mean followers of Jesus. It's more cool these days to say, I'm a person of faith, than, rather than I'm religious, because religion per se has become tarred with a bad name. But you need to be clear you're placing your trust in the right object, not just some nebulous higher power or the universe or other spiritual leaders, whether living or dead. Your trust needs to be in the Lord Jesus in order to be assured you're saved. As he said to the woman, your faith has healed you. It could also be translated, your faith has saved you. The object of your faith matters immensely.
The New Bible Commentary Revised notes, In the New Testament view, faith is no mere subjective experience, but something which derives its virtue from the object in which it rests, a spiritual experience which begins an adventure of spirit and is constituted and made effective by God himself. Hebrews 11 is referred to as the hall of fame of faith because it lists many who believed in God and through whom he consequently brought great deliverances for his people in the face of uh, amazing odds. Joseph, Moses, Gideon, David, and so on. Yet it also lists those whose commitment to God did not lead to happy endings for them. The world resisted their view. Hebrews 11, 36 to 38. Some faced jeers and flogging, while still others were chained and put in prison. They were stoned. They were sawed in two. They were put to death by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted, and mistreated. The world was not worthy of them. That last phrase, the world was not worthy of them. In other words, their lives were of great value, more than the world deserved. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Faith not only permits us to see what God can do and to focus on him and his possibilities, faith also heightens our preciousness to our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for rewarding the faith of Jairus and the woman with the incurable medical problem. Grant us help when we come up against problems that seem impossible to solve. We exalt you, Jesus, in your tenderness, your sensitivity to our condition, your care for all who call out to you. Help us, Lord, keep our eyes on you. Only believe and be prepared to see the astonishing things you're wanting to do through us and in our lives. In Christ's name, amen.